0: This is Amy Cohen Epstein, founder, president, and executive director of the Lynn Cohen Foundation and The Scene, the series for education and awareness in medicine. In this podcast, I'll be interviewing researchers, doctors, scientists, female founders, entrepreneurs to talk about women's health, wellness, and preventive care. Take a listen. I am so thrilled to be here with you today, Emily Goldmears. We recently did an event in Sun Valley, Idaho, where you spoke to a group of like 75 women of all different ages. I want to say ranging from about 23 to 83, and it was incredibly engaging and lively and wonderful. So much so I wanted to have you on this podcast so I could talk to you further. So thank you so much for being here. Well, thank you for having me both in Sun Valley and here. I'm delighted (laughs) to be here. It's great. So the first thing I wanna start, just jump right into it and say, I love the phrase that you are a citizen scientist. And I think it sort of rolls off your tongue, but it's so meaningful. And it just says so much about you as a person. So just get into that. Like, Tell me what that means to you and why you use that to describe yourself.
1: Well, there are actually a big group of people who refer to themselves as citizen scientists. And the reason I use that term is because I always loved science. But I went to a girls' school years ago, Mm -hmm. a long, long time ago. And in those days, they did not encourage women to go into science. I remember loving biology, but there was very little guidance. No one said, Oh, you know what? You should pursue this. So I kind of, you know, floundered around and went into law, which I did not love. And after my kids were pretty much raised, they're boys, so they're not fully raised ever. I thought, now I can go back into science. And I was too tired to go get a degree in science. So I thought, okay. I will be a citizen scientist, which is somebody who acknowledges scientific issues and tries to help look for solutions. And
0: basically that's what that is. And so how do you look for solutions and what kind of solutions are you looking for?
1: Well, I'm a research analyst at heart. I mean, while I did not love the practice of law, I gained great research skills Mm -hmm. and I love to research. And so I scour clinical studies through PubMed, Google Scholar, I will look and I have the ability to sift through the pseudoscience of which there is a great deal. And that's what people need to know, how to identify what is junk science and what is verifiable and Mm evidence-based.
0: And obviously you went down this road because of that like urge and desire to know things and to know things in a really analytical way. So tell me what it is that you really want to know about well
1: everything to tell you the <laughs> truth i'm very it's all curious in your book. okay <laughs> i'm really curious and i acknowledge that we live in such an unhealthy country and i don't think our conventional healthcare system is very helpful mm-hmm. they're great if you break a bone if you have an acute infection if you're in a car accident something like that you want to go straight to your allopathic doctor but for these chronic diseases which are increasing exponentially in my opinion they're not well equipped to handle them because they're so symptom oriented and not preventive oriented and many of these with some lifestyle changes and some control of your environment where you can they can be prevented or at the very least postponed
0: right and i always think like you need to do what you can so you know you did what you did and if something happens you have that knowledge that you you know you went down the healthiest path possible and you did all that you could to stay that way. And so if something else happens in your life, autoimmune disease, cancer, whatever it is, you have that like deep seated knowledge in yourself that this was caused by something else, something other than what I did, especially for women. Cause I feel like women end up with a lot of guilt when we get sick or something happens to our bodies that changes. And the first question we ask ourselves is, why did this happen to me? What did I do? I don't think men ask the same question to themselves. So arming yourself with the real knowledge, as you put it, I love that the, you know, being able to sift through the, the crap and the real stuff is a skill. And I think it's a learned skill and a honed skill that most people don't have because they are not citizen scientists, but those that are like you to go through that, share that information and to give us the information and the knowledge to go down that path. So talk to me about some of the favorite things. This is kind of a silly way to say it, but the favorite things that you've learned that have helped you in how you live your life and then how you disseminate that information to others.
1: That's a hard question because I find that when I talk about my book, I loved all of it. As a matter of fact, when I wrote it, my publisher made me cut it by a third. And that was really hard. I thought, but that's good information. And they said, people don't read long books anymore. But I changed everything because what I learned through my research was that I had done almost everything wrong. My nutrition was awful. I mean, it was really bad, shockingly so, up until about six years ago.
0: Like what, with sugar, with caffeine, with what?
1: Sugar. Sugar was my favorite food group and gluten, my second. (laughs) And literally, and because I was a runner and very active, I didn't gain weight. And I felt okay. But I didn't understand until I did my research that health is about your cells. And we don't know what's going on at the cellular level until you do some testing, and hopefully that occurs before you become too symptomatic because then it's much harder to reverse. But yeah, so my nutrition, I've changed dramatically. My sleep was disordered as 40% of Americans have inadequate sleep.
0: So get into this, talk to me about sleep because I'm obsessed with it.
1: Well, it's critically important. It affects every system, your endocrine system, your cognitive skills, your immune system, your vascular system. It's a really important component of health. And there's no set amount of time. Everyone's different, but you want to get between seven to eight hours of sleep and you want it to be good sleep. I wear this Aura ring, Mm -hmm. which measures my sleep. It tells me how much REM sleep and how much deep sleep. I don't know if it does so 100% accurately, but it gives me a broad framework so I can kind of know what's going on. Some nights I don't have great sleep. And if I know I don't, I tend not to look at the app on the phone (laughs) because I don't want to know. But it incentivizes me to really try to optimize my sleep. And the way that I do that is I sleep in a dark room. Any little light coming in can upset your sleep. A cold room. Mm -hmm. I try to go to bed and wake up at consistent times whenever possible. And another great thing that people can do that I found was helpful is in the morning when I wake up, I go outside and expose myself to daylight five, 10 minutes, not looking directly into the sun. But what that does is it redirects your circadian rhythms. It resets them. And that's critical because sleep is connected to circadian rhythms, which are on a 24 hour
0: cycle. And every cell in our body has its own circadian clock, which I find fascinating. So what do you do when you travel and you're out of your time zones? Like, do you freak out that you're going to be jet lagged and when will I sleep? Or do you sort of just let it go and get into it and figure out how to get yourself to bed? Well, I try hard not to freak out. (laughs) I'm not always successful, but I
1: know that that won't help. There's all sorts of hacks that people can do for jet lag. And I've tried some of them. Some of them are effective. I haven't been overseas for a few years now, so I can't even remember off the top of my head, but there's all these things that one can do to reset their clock before they leave. Mm -hmm. There's even an app. I can't remember the name of it. I'll have to look for that and I'll send it to you. An Mm -hmm. app that you can download and look to before you travel, if you're going overseas into many different time zones, that will be very helpful. But I just do the best I can. Matter of fact, that applies to all of this. There's so much stuff that you can do. And I don't suggest that people do all of it because that's overwhelming. So I think, you know, just do the best you can do. Try every little step, I think will make a positive impact.
0: I agree. The thing I always hone in on with sleep, especially with I have three teenage boys, is it also matters when you sleep. As you said, try and go to bed, you know, try and have that sleep rhythm at the same time every day, every night. No- you know, go to bed around the same time every night, wake up around the same time every morning. And you know, I just was on the phone the other night with my son in college, and it was he's three hours ahead, and it was my bed, way past my bedtime. And I'm like, please, please, this is not good sleep. This is not considered good sleep, even if you're getting eight hours. Your body needs to go to bed a lot earlier. So I really appreciate that point. One of the things you said was testing and testing before something happens so we can go down the preventive road. So talk to me about that and testing and what that means. What kind of tests?
1: Well, I'm a huge believer in testing. As a matter of fact, I think that before you even take a supplement, you should do testing first because you need to know, you need to get a baseline of what's going on internally at a cellular level. And the only way you can do that is through testing. And there are so many different tests available now. And a lot of conventional doctors will not agree to this. Mm -hmm. They'll do the basic blood work, the very, very basic blood work. But if you go to a functional or a holistic or an integrative doctor, they have a huge battery of different tests. And even if you don't wanna do that, there are now platforms available where you can buy the test. And along with the price that you pay, comes an analysis of your results. And so that's great. That opens up a whole area for people to do and you can test everything. And what it gives you is an idea of where you are.
0: And so when you talk about supplements, so the idea of like, are you low on calcium? Are you low on iron? Are you high on those things? Or what other kind of like things would you gather out of this testing that you would then put into your everyday life?
1: So I know for a fact that most people are walking around with micronutrient deficiencies, you know, and those are amino acids and enzymes and vitamins and minerals and most basic blood tests given by a conventional doctor, they'll just do the basics and they won't go into all these specific micronutrients. And micronutrient deficiency is a component of disease. Tell us what that
0: means. What is micronutrient deficiency? It means if you're
1: deficient in all those things, amino acids, enzyme, minerals. Minerals are really important. You know, zinc and copper and magnesium. I think 80% of Americans are deficient in magnesium. And magnesium is responsible for over 300 enzymatic reactions in our bodies. So that's a good thing to know. It helps you sleep. (laughs) <laughs> it does help you sleep. That's right, and there's eight different kinds of magnesium. Yeah. And so you want to zero in on the best type. but a lot of times people will read an article about a particular supplement and think, "Oh, I'm going to take that." And they should first, in my opinion, find out, well, what's their baseline? Do they really need extra zinc? Because mm-hmm. zinc is synergistic with copper, and maybe they are already good with their zinc, and if they take too much, it'll throw their copper out of balance. And this is true for a lot of them. You know, maybe your B vitamins are fine and you don't need to supplement because the word supplement by definition means you are adding to where you are deficient. Right.
0: And one of the things this leads me to talk about or want to talk to you about is menopause. So perimenopause and menopause, which is finally like a hot topic right now. It is. But you know, I'm in the phase of perimenopause, which of course can last a decade or longer and I went to my regular doctor who I adore and she's brilliant and I love her. But, you know, I said, I'm experiencing so many changes in my body. And her answer was actually really quick with maybe we should put you back on the pill. So I don't have fallopian tubes. I cannot get pregnant. I don't need to be on the pill for that reason. I was on the pill for a very long time to reduce risk of ovarian cancer, which is a whole other topic but I said to her, I don't really want to be on the pill. And she was like, okay, we'll think about other things. So then I went to my naturopath, my holistic doctor, and she said, well, let's have a full blood test, you know, seven vials to figure out where's your body at, where your hormone levels are, what are you deficient in, what can we change in order to get you through this period of time as comfortably as possible. And I was so thrilled and so just overwhelmed with it was happiness that someone saw me as a full person and that wanted to dig into, well, this isn't just a phase and you'll get through it. And then you go through menopause and we'll deal with that then. Like, this is real. This is happening to you. How can we make you more comfortable?
1: Right? It's, it sounds like a good doctor is willing to do that really. And there are a lot of things that you can do. I mean, your sleep and what you eat and your exercise, all those things will impact how you go through perimenopause and menopause. They have an impact. The one thing that I like to harp on Mm. is that nothing acts alone in our body. All of our systems are interrelated. And very few doctors acknowledge that. They're all specialists. If you go to a cancer doctor, they are only looking at you about cancer. Mm -hmm. And they don't realize that a lot of these protocols, they impact your heart, Mm -hmm. your brain, your lungs, your bones, without any regard to those. And very few doctors look at a person holistically.
0: Yeah as a really, as a full whole body person. Yeah. And I think particularly with women, we go through so many different phases in our life. You know, we have, we get our periods, we go through puberty, then somewhere around 18-ish years old, there's this like second puberty that we go through. Your body changes if you have children, after children, again, in your thirties, forties, our metabolism's changing. And understanding as for us that we need to retest, refine our baseline, as we get older, because it's changing, right? And then we have to change what we do in order to get sort of hover back to that normal. Right, we're constantly
1: aging. And as we're aging, just as you say, things are changing, they don't remain the same. And so that's why it is good to get a baseline, to see how far off your baseline you are, because maybe you're only a little bit off your baseline. And that can be explained just by natural aging.
0: Right, I have a friend who's going through cancer treatment right now. And one of the things that I think is really difficult for her is understanding the treatment that she has that is necessary, but the side effects of that treatment and all that it's doing to her body and all the changes that are happening that are because of the treatment, not because of the cancer. So tell me a little bit about your experience with with that treatment cancer. Well, I did
1: have breast cancer and was a crazy experience because I was fortunate in that I was able to find my tumor simply because of where it was located close to the skin. Mm -hmm. Had it been deeper, it never showed up on the mammogram, I wouldn't have felt it. And so I went to the doctor. I had an MRI, which showed that, yes, I had a small tumor, stage one, very slow growing. And the doctor, the surgeon, said, okay, you're looking at surgery, radiation, I don't know about chemotherapy, and estrogen blockers. I said, whoa, wait just a minute here. (laughs) Are you going to treat me with stage one, small, slow-growing tumor the same way that you're going to treat a woman with stage four, a big tumor? That doesn't make sense to me. I understand that's the standard of care, but this is, you know, we are in the 21st century, and perhaps we can think outside of the box and maybe not treat everyone the same way because that just defies logic. I
0: can't imagine your doctor's response.
1: It wasn't wasn't good at all. It really wasn't good. And I mean, I tried to be, listen, I was frightened because that I think is what they teach the oncologists in day one of oncology school. Make sure that you scare the patient as much as you can. And they do a good job. And mine was during COVID. So I was by myself and there were all sorts of other layers of anxiety attached to it. But I said, okay, I'm not doing radiation because I've read a lot of clinical studies that at a certain age, I wasn't at that age yet, but, you know, I was on my way. The risks outweigh the benefits. Mm -hmm. Not to mention I made my own decisions, which may or may not be correct, that all radiation does is it prevents a recurrence locally. And my concern, if I had a recurrence locally, I would have had a mastectomy. But I was concerned about metastasis and radiation does nothing to prevent metastasis. Mm -hmm. So I said, okay, I'm not doing metastasis. And then my next thing didn't go over well at all. I'm not doing the estrogen blockers. I did have ERPR positive, HER2 negative. Mm-hmm. But he said, well, you're crazy. Then you need to have a mastectomy. I said, really? You know, I had a tumor that was 5.5 millimeters, just over half a centimeter. And you're gonna, <laughs> that seems a little bit drastic. He said, well, you know, I said, no, uh-uh. I said, I am not going to do the estrogen blockers because... Once again, I'm not claiming that I'm 100% correct, but my sense is that we need estrogen. We need it to protect our brain. And my father died of a neurodegenerative disease. We need for it to protect our heart. My maternal father died in his 30s of a heart attack. We need it to protect our bones. My mother, my sister, and I all have osteoporosis. And so I'm not going to do that. And he said, well, you're making the mistake. And I said, you know what? I might be. I have no guarantees, but I sure don't know that What you're recommending is right either. Because I know a lot of stories about women who've done exactly what they were told to do and they had a recurrence years later.
0: And you know your body better than anyone else. Certainly someone who's just seen you and looking at labs and slices of pictures of your body.
1: Indeed, indeed. So that's what I did. And as it turned out, that first surgery, he couldn't find my tumor. (laughs) Despite having what's called a Savvy Scout locator implanted, the morning of the surgery, which is a beeping radar device that is used for the express purpose to guide the surgeon as to where to cut, implanted using ultrasound. And when I went in for my post-operative appointment, he said, well, you won't believe this. We couldn't find your tumor. And I said, I don't understand. What, what does that even mean? And I now know he knew exactly what it meant. I didn't know because I was a neophyte. I, and this was my first time. But the only thing it could have meant was that he cut into me at the wrong place.
0: Oh my God. That's, I mean, truly a nightmare. And he knew that.
1: And instead what he said, he said, you know, we don't know. Maybe it was sucked out in the biopsy, but I doubt that it could still be inside of you. I said, really? So I just went through that surgery and it's still inside of me. He said, well, try not to worry about it. We won't know for six months until you can have a mammogram. You have to wait six months before you can be screened. And- I mean, I walked out of there just really befuddled. Like, it was just staggering to me. I now know, in retrospect, that what he should have done was say, we made a mistake. We're humans. We need to get you right back in, and we need to cut at the right place. But instead, he told me to wait six months. And so I waited six months. I had a mammogram, and the radiologist said, do you know that you have seven pieces of metal in your breast? I said, no, I did not know that. They didn't tell me that. And he said, well, I can tell you exactly why they couldn't find your tumor, because the two biopsy clips, the metal clips that are left behind after a biopsy, they're nowhere near the five other metal clips that were used to close up your incision. They're very far away. So it's clear they cut into you at the wrong place. And so then I walked out of
0: there. <laughs> I'm like speechless. I don't think I've ever been so speechless in I my I was
1: life. as well. I thought, okay, now what I do, I'm certainly not going back to the guy at Cedars, the well-known internationally respected guy. I'm not going back to him. So it took me a while to figure out a what to do, find someone I could trust. And I finally did, you know, and hopefully there's a good ending to the story. Just a few months ago in May, I found a woman who was fantastic. She was the antithesis of my first surgeon. And she kept saying to me, I am so sorry this happened to you. I am really sorry, which I took as a thinly veiled indictment of the first surgeon. You know, Mm -hmm. doctors never like to say anything bad about each other, Mm -hmm. but her saying this should never have happened, I thought was her way of saying, you know- This should
0: never have happened. (laughs) This was a,
1: a rookie mistake. Yeah. you know, And when you're asleep, you don't know who cuts into you. It could have been one of the fellows or one of the other people. I mean, the whole thing was rather shocking. But anyway, so I redid the surgery. It took me 15 months to find someone who I felt that I would like and I could trust and to kind of gather up the energy to go through it again. Not that it was a terrible surgery, but just to trust someone. And she did great. You know, when I went for my post-op, she said, I found that tumor. I took it out of you. I took out the biopsy clip, which he should have done. And he never did, which was my first red flag. And by the way, the tumor doubled in size in the, in the 15 months that you waited.
0: That's an incredible, incredible story. I think to me, the big takeaways are, one, you need to know your own body. You need to be in touch with yourself. You need to be willing to feel yourself. You need to know what your normal is, what's not normal, what's outside of your normal. And then you have to be your own best advocate. Nobody will do it for you. And as women in particular, we get into a doctor's office, you know, we have such a hard time questioning, you know, saying, I don't think that's right for me. And you did all of those things actually, but really- feeling uncomfortable in the situation and getting up and leaving and saying, this isn't right. You're not listening to me. I know my body better than you do. And something doesn't feel good. Something doesn't feel right. And it is such a hard, no matter how competent, how confident you are, it's such a hard thing to do. It's hard for women to even talk about something that might be a little, quote, embarrassing when they're in a doctor's office, which is seemingly crazy. That's when you're supposed to. But I've talked to so many women who won't say something because they're like, oh, it's embarrassing. I don't want to say it. Well, that's your moment. That's your time. You know, I have, I feel a lump or, you know, my periods are off or I've had a constipation or diarrhea for a year. You know, what does that mean? And I just think we have to reiterate over and over again, be your own best advocate, do your research. And if you're not going to do your research with a doctor, find a citizen scientist like you, Emily, who can help sift through the information and go down the right path, because that's a terrible story. I'm, the yeah. ending is wonderful, yeah. but that is a, that's a yeah. horrific. Well,
1: I made one other mistake that I would caution people not to make. And part of it was because of the timing. It was during COVID. And I did get two other opinions. at City of Hope and UCLA. Mm-hmm. But because of the timing, it was January of 2022. Everyone was backed up. There was some, one of the COVID variants was raging. And I liked the team at UCLA, but they couldn't schedule me for six to eight weeks. And my mistake was, I want to get this over with. I don't want to think about it anymore. I want to do it and be done with it and move on. And that was a mistake. That was a big mistake. I should have thought that was a red flag. He could do me the following week. And that should have been, you know, a message to me. And I thought, okay, I want it over with you know i'm always in a hurry and that is a mistake even though i'm i am my own health advocate i would caution people to not be in a hurry take your time because, because your gut
0: your gut had told you at that moment you know yeah. that was the right team the right place but you know hindsight is 2020 20, of course yeah. but i agree with you you know you can't rush those things when you have something comes along and it's cancer and it's malignant you have to really wait for the right team that feels good for you, that you, you feel like understands you, understands where you're coming from, understands your body, understands you understand the course of treatment and you sign off of it, on it yourself. There's obviously trust involved. That oncologist, those oncologists, your current oncologist knows more than we do. We hope so. You know, they're the ones cutting into you. They're the ones following up with either radiation or chemo or or whatever you choose. And so you want them to know more than you but you want to know what they know, right? You want them to be able to explain it to you and for it to make sense to you. And that's a really hard, that's so easily said and sometimes really hard yeah. to do. I interviewed six medical oncologists mm-hmm. and I disliked
1: all of them <laughs> because I was stunned at how each one was focused on scaring me. Yeah, And I thought that's not helpful. And finally I found one and I said, look, what I'm looking for is someone who can help me balance the risks and the benefits Because that's all we have. There are no guarantees. And you guys may know a lot of information, but you don't have any guarantees. And we're each individual, biochemically and genetically. And what works for one may not work for another. And so I'm looking for someone who will talk it out and tell me, okay, what are the risks and what are the benefits of each one of these things? And I found a guy who would put up with me, (laughs) you know, and he would discuss it with me. And he would say, no, that's a bad idea. And I would say, why? explain to me why that's a bad idea, because I'm not going to just take that at face value. I want to understand. But that was hard to find. Really hard to
0: find. That is hard to find. It's hard to find in general and in yeah. life, let alone with a doctor, let alone with a medical oncologist. That's Very a really, true. really hard, hard yeah. person to find. Any partner. And that that person is your partner for you know, seemingly a long time walking you through a really, a really scary situation that they are not supposed to make scarier. Right. And they do. Yeah, they do. They I don't do. know why. Like Where does that come from? Like you said, is it the first thing they teach at medical school? I it's, don't know. It's bizarre. I don't know.
1: I mean, I had the one at Sea of Hope and one of the ones at UCLA said, well, you know, if you don't do this, you're at a high risk of metastasis. I said, how do you know? <laughs> they said, well, because you'll have circulating tumor cells. I said, how do you know? I said, we're all walking around with cancer cells. Mm-hmm. And depending upon our immune system, we either kill them or they, you know, proceed into a tumor. So- Maybe you have circulating tumors too. <laughs> I'm not the greatest patient, I admit, but you know, I just want someone to, you know, help balance the risks and the benefits. That's all.
0: I think that makes a great patient. So just tell me, this is going to be so hard for you to do, and I can't even imagine. But give me like the three, the three takeaways. Two, three, one, whatever. Takeaways of how you can make subtle changes in your life or no change but understand why you are so that we can live a more preventive, healthier life.
1: So it is hard because I think there are so many things that we can do. I think that sleep is critical. If one has disordered sleep, and so many of us do, it's going to be really hard to get the other things in line. Mm -hmm. So I would focus on sleep, but also nutrition. Mm -hmm. And along with that is the gut. If your gut is dysbiotic, which many people's gut is dysbiotic, and that simply means an imbalance of good and bad bacteria, if that's really off balance, it's going to be hard to get your other systems in place. And so I would focus on the gut. And there are a lot of things that one can do. And the good news is our gut lining regenerates every two to three weeks. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if you have proper guidance and some due diligence, you can improve the state of your gut. And when you do that, it will affect everything positively, your brain, your sleep everything. And then the third is we have to move. We're so sedentary, but that's not good at all. We have to move. And I'm not saying go to the gym necessarily, because for some people that's too hard. It doesn't fit into their schedule. But so every 45 minutes, if your job requires you to sit at your computer, get up and walk around, go up and down stairs, park far away from the entrance to wherever it is you're going. Movements like that throughout the day will pay off.
0: Yeah. I love that. And those are easy things to do. Yeah. I think when you talk about the gut, some people freak out because they're like, I don't want to talk about my gut, but it's so important. And you know, as they say, your poop tells you everything about what's going on in your body. Truly. Don't be afraid of it. Truly, truly. Lots of testing one can do there. Yeah, exactly. It's fascinating. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) We'll get into that next time. Thank you so much. This was phenomenal. Thank Clearly you we for could having chat me. forever. It's yes, it was absolutely my pleasure. Your book is amazing. Optimizing your health. I encourage everyone to read it. Even if you hone in on one chapter and just, you know, get into it deeply, I think is, is good. Obviously everyone's going to read your whole book, but you know, take everything and figure out ways to bring it into your life. I think that will make all of us healthier, happier, and live a more preventive life, which is the goal. Well,
1: I hope so. Thank you so much for this opportunity. I appreciate it. Thank you
0: so much. This was wonderful. Thanks.